Let's turn to the book of Jude. This will be our last Sunday in Jude. And we have the opportunity today to read and study some of the most beautiful words and some of the most important theological and spiritual things that we may ever have the chance to. And I don't want you to think that, uh, well, I'm, you're just building it up for the today. Most of us have heard these words, and we tend to describe it as the great Jude doxology. Uh, and it is great, but it is rich, and it is full of great things. So if you're able, will you stand with me, and I will read the word of God today. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us today, that we might do more than just read these words and hear these words, but that through the power of your Holy Spirit, they would penetrate our hearts. We would more fully understand who you are, what you have done to us, and now what you call us to do and be because of your grace and mercy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we read... Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated. When I was uh, growing up and people would ask, well, Rand, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, the standard line was, well, we wanted to be like the people that, that we admired, who did really cool and great things. We wanted to be policemen, and we wanted to be firemen, and we wanted to be astronauts, and we wanted to be teachers, and people who were impacting our life, and people that we could see in the world, uh, people who had real influence, perhaps, in our lives. Uh, In a recent survey, a group of 12-year-olds was asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, and the main answer was, I want to be a celebrity. A celebrity. (laughs) Now, how do you get to be a celebrity? Well, you either have some great talent uh, or you make a fool of yourself in public enough that you get on the news on a regular basis. You go out and you do stupid things or you wear inappropriate clothes or not enough clothes in public uh, so that you get your picture taken a lot or perhaps you're a sports figure that is marginally talented and you do something stupid on the field and then you get interviewed and before you know it, your name is a household name and you become a celebrity, okay? Hmm. Now, if we look at what celebrities are known for, is that really what we want to emulate with our lives? Is that who we want to be like? Okay? Do I want to be known for uh, serial marriages? Do I want to be known for uh, parading around in in inappropriate clothes? All, All of these things. And, you know, it doesn't have to be somebody famous to do stupid things. I know this is a shock, but you or I probably have done some stupid things in our lives. Things that we would not make us celebrities, and we do not want our children to go, I want to be like that, right? No. There is one person in this world, and only one, that we want to be like, and his name is Jesus. 
Okay? That is the answer to the question, who do you want to be like when you grow up? Okay? Now, that, that question, it's the same question to a 12-year-old or a 50-year-old. Who do you want to be like when you grow up? I want to be like Jesus. Okay? Do you know what that demands from us? Uh, it demands all that we are. But yet the payoff is so fantastic. So fantastic. Remember, it is Jesus, he who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You want to be like that guy? Let's take a poll. How many of you want to be like him? None of you? I'm hoping everybody is going to raise their hand. Do you want to be like Christ? Now, you cannot be the exact representation of the Father and and all that. You can't uphold the universe by the word of your power, but you can be obedient and you can live lives that are holy, lives that grow more and more like Christ. Now, as I said, this is the great Jude doxology, and the word doxology is used some 60 times throughout the New Testament, mostly for phrases, mostly for passages that honor God. It expresses the nature of God to whom we give praise and glory. It's more than just praising God. Praise God. It is praising God from what? Whom all blessings flow. And how many of those blessings flow from God? It says all of them. Okay? So we are to praise God for whom, from whom all of these things flow. And they flow down from up. Yeah, from up down to us, okay? They flow from the greater to the lesser. And why should this God, who has everything in the world, he has everything in the universe, he has all eternity before him, why should he rain down a blessing upon the likes of you and I? It is simply his great love and purpose to do so. Now, this God that we worship is not an idol that we carved. It is not something made from our hands. This is not something that we produce, that we worship He is in and of himself worthy of worship. Now, that is a concept that is really foreign to us because we think, well, what do you have to do to be a celebrity? You have to do something. You have to be very good at something or you have to be brazen or something like that. But God, in and of his very nature, is worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor. It's not as if he is an egomaniac saying, you must worship me, you must honor me, I must have more glory. He can't have more glory than he already has because he has what? All glory. Matthew 5 says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your bodies. 1 Corinthians 10 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, why are we called, even commanded to glorify God? Because he alone is worthy. Not he and I, just he. So that brings us to the Jude doxology. Now, we're used to seeing things like this from Paul. We read it in Romans in our unison reading about Something that is similar to this, Paul often says grace and mercy and peace to you from God the Father and things like that. In reality, this is at the end of the book, so it's more like a benediction, but the content of it is more like a doxology because it praises God. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, I want to give you a couple things to think about. I should say I want to give you one thing in particular to think about. 
Salvation is forever. Salvation is forever. Now, there are other aspects of our salvation. There is justification. There is adoption. There is redemption. uh, There is confession. There are all these things, but none of those have any impact if our salvation is not forever. If our salvation is not eternal, if our salvation is not secured by the one who gives it to us, without assurance of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we would live in a state of constant fear that the Lord, he might change his mind. I mean, what if I'm, what if I do that one thing, you know, that breaks the straw that breaks the camel's back? What if I just do that one thing that really makes God mad and he turns to me and says, I've had enough of you, Randy. You're done. You had your chance, but you've messed up. How would you live with that? I would want to get out of bed in the morning for fear that I would do something that would be the last straw, but it is purely, I might think, that thought that would be the last straw. I might say something to to somebody who comes to visit me that might be the last. How could you live in that state of unassurance of the work of Christ and his salvation in your life? But remember what Romans says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, no created thing. And who created everything? It is God the Father has created everything. Now, if it was up to us alone to maintain our salvation, we would never find peace. We would never find security. We struggle with sin. We are imperfect. Remember Paul who was, you know, if we're on a scale of great Christians, Paul's up there at the top. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, he was talking about the sin that, that, that remains. Yes, he was in Christ, but there is sin that tugs on him and calls his name and pulls at him. And he says, I am wretched. Even though he was in Christ, he says, I am wretched. Who can deliver me from this? The ultimate deliverance comes the time we stand before the Lord. But he understood that all of his previous life, all of his works, amounted to nothing and could never maintain his standing before the Lord. So thankfully, our salvation, our eternal security before the Lord does not rest upon our own works. It rests upon the work of Christ, and it is God himself who guarantees this salvation. Now understand, God makes certain that those whom he chooses will forever remain in his grace and care, forever. God makes certain that the death of Christ covers the sins of those whom he chooses. God makes certain the Holy Spirit seals, protects, preserves those whom the Lord chooses. God makes certain that those whom he chooses confess, repent, believe, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God makes certain of these things. And because he makes certain of this, we understand that our salvation is eternally secure in him. So as we come to the end of Jude here, and Jude has has warned us again and again and again of false teachers. He has warned us again and again, you've got to watch out. This is their character. This is what they say. He comes and he says, now I want to remind you of the great God that cares for you. I want to remind you of his work in your life. I want to remind you that he alone is worthy of your praise. Even in the midst of all these false teachers, even in the midst of all these bad guys coming and invading the church, God alone is able to sustain you, and he will sustain you. So let's look, verse 24. 
It begins with this phrase, now to him who is able. Now there's a qualifier here in a minute, but there are many times in Scripture that says to him who is able. To him who is able. We know in Romans we read that, in Ephesians, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can dream or imagine. Okay, It, it is him who is able. I, I, just think on that for a moment. He who is able. This is an objective statement. It is not a subjective statement, and we covered objectivity and subjectivity last week about our, our faith, that, that we have faith in, in an objective truth. Okay, This is an assurance that is grounded in an objective truth. God alone is able. We live in a dangerous world, and there are false teachers, there are seductive uh, philosophies, but he, he says this is God who has called you by name, who has drawn you from sin, and who has, has given you grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, he is able. Okay? He is able. Now, he has called us to responsibility. He has called us to watchfulness, carefulness in our doctrine. Make sure, watch out for the invaders of the church. Do all these things. But in the end, what is it that keeps us from stumbling? It is God alone. Who keeps us because he alone is able. Is Randy able to watch all the time? Is Randy able to be attentive to all the needs and all the things that go on and all the influences he has in his world? No. But God alone is able to preserve us. God alone is our hope and our refuge. It is ultimately God who keeps us and guards us. Now it says, to he, to him who is able, now here's the qualifier in this particular instance, to keep you from stumbling. To keep you from stumbling. Now, Jude is reminding us here that it is God alone who is able to keep us from stumbling. To keep us is to watch guard as if there is a watchman on the wall who is watching over us all the time. He never leaves his post. No matter what is going on within our lives, he understands these things. Let's turn to John chapter 10 to get a a good idea of what this means. He is able to keep us from stumbling, from falling out of grace, from falling out of grace. Please don't think that, well, Randy, I've fallen into sin. I mean, does that mean that God's not able to keep me from stumbling? No, we understand that believers will stumble in that way. We will make mistakes and we will err and we will go into places and things and philosophies that we shouldn't. But once we are in the hand of the Lord, he is able to keep us from stumbling. That means we never leave his hand. That means our eternal security is, our eternal salvation is secure. We're in John chapter 10, verse 27. We'll see one example of this. Now, now, if, if perhaps you were raised in a tradition that said, well, you can lose your salvation or there are issues that you can fall out of grace, you have to explain this passage to me. Um, and to justify that belief, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. What kind of life is that? That is eternal life. And they shall never perish. Or is, is that they shall not usually perish? No, they shall never perish. We're talking about eternal life here. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if the Father is greater than all, 
Then he says, nobody can snatch them from the Father's hand, and the Father has given them to me, so therefore nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Why? Look at verse 30. I and the Father are one. One. So if you think the Lord has turned his back on you, if you ever think that he has deserted you, go and read this. You belong to him. You belong to him forever. Okay, he is the one who has latched onto you. He is the one who's called you by name, drawn him, you unto himself, and he gives eternal life. Turn back to a couple pages to uh, John chapter six. John's reminding us that and showing us that we are to bless our God because he has the power to enable us to persevere forever. And you think. Lord, the, the weight of this world is too much. What you're putting me through, I just can't handle. The Lord has given you the ability to persevere. Jude has been talking about being on guard and watching out for the false teachers. And, and we think, well, I could be led astray. I could fall into sin. And he said, no, the Lord protects you. Okay? Not only is he willing to preserve believers, he is able to preserve believers willing to preserve believers and he is able to preserve believers this is a little bit different from randy is willing to go play professional golf for a living is randy able to play golf well that's another story but it's not with the lord if he is willing to do something he is able to do something he does it john chapter 6 verse 37 All the Father gives me shall come to me. All they shall. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That all that he has given me I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You get the alls and the shalls, and I will, and this is the way it is. You belong to Christ, you belong to Christ. If he has called you by name and drawn him unto yourself, you, there's no getting out of it. Verse 41, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Who comes to Christ? Those whom the Father draws. Just to remind you, that word draw is the same word that is used to get water out of a well. How do you get water out of a well? Come here, come here. You don't do that. You send the bucket down on a line, you submerge the bucket, and then you bring the bucket up. That's what the Lord does. He comes down to us, extends himself to us in his grace and mercy, and he calls us by name, and he grabs a hold of us. He says, come unto me. You now belong to me, and you can never be taken from that relationship because the Father has done that work. He, he is able. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He seals the deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a seal, an imprint, a guarantor, like a signet ring or like a stamp that you put in wax. That's what it means. That you were once 
You once belonged to the world, now you belong to him. Your life is forever sealed in him. 1 Peter 5, God himself protects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes those who are his children. Okay, those are all words. This is what the Lord does for those who belong to him. Our present lives might involve pain and suffering, but because we belong to him, he gives us the grace to endure. Go back to Jude. Now, you better go to Ephesians 5. I'll go to Jude. You go to Ephesians 5. We read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and then we go to, And make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To make you stand, to set or to establish you. At the present, believers stand in grace. When we stand in his presence, we will stand in glory. Now, we understand that Isaiah, when he stood in the presence of the Lord there in chapter 6, he pronounced a curse on himself. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't be here. Okay, Ezekiel, when he came face to face with God's glory, he fell down like a dead man in in chapter 1. Okay, when you come face to face with God's glorious presence, you feel the immense weight of your sinfulness. To come face to face with God's glory is to feel the immense weight of your own sinfulness. But yet it says here, he is able to make you stand how? Blameless. Blameless. He makes you stand blameless. You don't come to him and say, I'm blameless, Lord. I'm good now to go. No, he does the work and makes you blameless. We're going to stand before him in the day of judgment, not for judgment upon ourselves, but for vindication because of the work of Christ. We'll stand before him in joy. We will stand before him in glory, blameless, with great joy. Hebrews 12 says, You have come to the Mount of Zion, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is standing blameless before the Lord. When Jude uses the image of blamelessness and faultless, he's using that Old Testament sacrificial language. You had to have the perfect lamb, spotless, without blemish. We find that Jesus Christ is the spotless, sinless lamb of God. And now, he, how are we to be presented before the Lord? Ephesians 5, verse 25. always say, husbands, we have the hardest job when it comes to marriage. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless." It is Christ who does the work in the life of the church to present the church, that is the body of Christ, to himself without blemish, holy and pure. Now, could you get to the Lord in that way on your own? I mean, when was the last time you were pure and holy, without blemish? I I, I can't come up with a date. Because I've never been. Remember, David said, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. Okay, I was, 
sinful in my mother's womb. It is this sin nature that we have. And the Lord says, I'm going to come and I'm going to present you as believers to myself holy, washed in the water and the word. That is blameless before the Lord. Now, there is even a future glory that is even greater than anything that he has displayed to us as of yet. Remember a couple weeks ago, Dan said that, and I'm paraphrasing, he said that if the Lord revealed all the glories of heaven to us while we were here in this earth, that is all we would think about. We would not contemplate anything else. We would not do anything else. We would spend all day and all night contemplating the glories of heaven because it would be so glorious and so fantastic. There are things the Lord has yet to reveal to us. And that is the extent of the wonders and glories that await us when we stand before the Lord. And Jude is saying at this last, when we stand before the living God, it will be God's work that gets us there, not our own. It will be his grace, not our own merits. It will be his will and his power. He is able to make you stand in his presence. How? Pretty good? Doing well? No. Blameless without spot or blemish. And for those who think they can get to the Lord on their own works, it will be a rude shock on that day. Back to Jude. Verse 25. To the only God, our Savior. Now Jude's making the point there is only one God. And that is the triune God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. We call it the Trinity. Now, we have some issues here because it's not always politically correct to be so dogmatic about there is only one God. Therefore, Jesus Christ says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So there's only one means of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. Not everybody likes to hear that or like to talk about that. But, you know, it's what it says. It's what it says. And in reality, there is more historic and objective truth for the validity of the Christian faith than there is for any other religion in the world. I mean, just the historic evidence, and and that's a whole other issue to go into, but there is more of that objective evidence for the validity of the Christian faith than any other religion. Now, I want you to understand, just because you believe it doesn't make it true. Okay, you remember the, the bumper sticker? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Sorry, God said it. That settles it. Doesn't matter whether we believe it. It's not my faith that makes the thing true. It is God that makes the thing true. I was sitting in a seminary class years and years ago, and the seminary professor who was uh, uh, she was not theologically where I was. We'll put it that way looked at the class and then pointed up to me and a couple guys who were sitting in the top row because we never sat in the front because, you know, we sit in the back, good Presbyterians, and, and said, you all evangelize only to justify your own faith. Now think about that. You evangelize only to justify your own faith. And we were, we were so dumbfounded by the statement. I looked at the other guys and they said, I'm not, you know, why should we even respond to that? It's not like I evangelize, okay, I got another person to believe, that means I must be even righter. No, really, it's, this is what God says. If you don't like it, hey, odds are, there's 
we don't like some of the same things that are in God's word. But yet that's what he says. That's what he calls us to do. This is how we are to live. Okay? He is not only the one true God, he is also our Savior. And you think, well, isn't Christ our Savior? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But remember, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. Okay? So we find in uh, Scripture, I don't know, a lot of times it talks about Christ as the Savior. It also speaks about, in New Testament, eight or nine times, God the Father as our Savior. God the Father as our Savior. It is God and God alone who saves. He loves to save. He loves to have his own come to him. He loves to reach out and grab them, that we might know his grace, that we might know his mercy, that our lives might be forever changed. He loves that. And what happens when one sinner repents and comes to Christ? What do the angels do? That's when the angels rejoice, okay? Remember I sang that? Or I didn't sing it. I read the words to you. They rejoice when one sinner comes to Christ. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now the focus is on Christ. Now the focus is on the mediatorial work of Christ. He, is, he stands between us and the Father. The Father cannot have sin in his presence. So Christ says, I will shed my blood to atone for those who belong to you, who those whom you will give me, they will stand in the cleansing work of the blood of Christ. The focus is on Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and his people. There are no others. Let me read something to you from Isaiah. You can write down if you want the reference, Isaiah 4.2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It talks about the day when the work of Christ will be complete, and we will stand before how? Before the Lord, beautiful and glorious. It calls us the fruit of the earth. It will be the pride and adornment. That is the work of Christ. That is the glories of Christ in our salvation. Then the one last thing here, it's a big long list for, for here, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. These things. Now when we praise God, we are not giving him something that he doesn't already have. We are acknowledging his very character. Remember, it's not as if we could give him more glory. He just says, glorify me. He's got it all already. We are ascribing to him the glory which is due his name. Remember, in the Old Testament, glory is the word for weightiness. There is a weightiness about the glory of the Lord. It is his splendor. It is his majestic presence. The radiance of the light, it's heavier than the weight of the world. His glory. Isaiah says, and the glory of his train filled the temple. He mentions the authority and the power the intrinsic right of our Heavenly Father to rule over everything. He is giving eternal praise to God in this, in this section. Um, he's reminding us that we bless God not only because he has the power to cause us to persevere, but because he has the power and does so and makes us stand in his presence. He's the only God and Savior. He's the only God and Savior. Notice all the direction here in this glorious doxology. It is towards God. It's God's glory. It's not ours. 
It's God's status. It's not ours. It's God's control. It's not ours. It's God's power, not ours. This is the same God who secures our salvation. I read to you. I couldn't put it any better than the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. Spurgeon said, When I heard it said that the Lord would keep his people right to the end, that Christ had said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. I must confess that the doctrine of the final preservation of the saints was a bait that my soul could not resist. I thought it was a sort of life insurance, an insurance of my character, an insurance of my soul, an insurance of my eternal destiny. I knew that I could not keep myself, but if Christ promised to keep me, then I should be safe forever. And I longed and prayed to find Christ because I knew that if I found him, he would not give me temporary or trumpery salvation, such as some preach, but eternal life which could never be lost." the living and incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever. For no one and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you're able to keep us. Not only are you able, but you do. For those whom you draw unto yourself and you give your grace and this new life in Jesus Christ, you keep us for all eternity. But you leave us here that we might give you glory, that we might carry out your will and your commands, that we might learn obedience, that we might be ever more conformed to the image of Christ. Who do we want to be like when we grow up? We want to be like Christ. We want to be obedient to you. We want to have our wills conform to yours. We want to make sure that when people look at us, they see you. When they hear words out of our mouths, they are words of encouragement and blessing and words of truth in the same way that you would speak. When they see our actions, that they would see actions of compassion and mercy and strength and and an uncompromising clinging to the things that are true. that our character would not be in doubt, that our motives would not be in doubt, but they would see you when they look at us, that they would hear you when they hear words from our mouths. Lord, that's who we want to be when we grow up. We want to be like Christ. So we pray that each day that you leave us here, that we might be more and more conformed to his image, strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, and that, Lord, wherever you place us, whatever we do for a living, whoever our friends are, that we would have the wisdom to apply the things of Christ in those situations. How might I demonstrate the teachings of Christ in my profession? How might I demonstrate them in my leisure time, to my children, to my family, that all of our lives would be devoted to you. Lord, come upon us that in these moments we might be encouraged, our hearts enlivened 
that we understand that you alone are able to do these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.